0: One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Feminist. Hello and welcome back Mormon. to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives, Housewives Podcast. And I'm your host Lindsay bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy series where we seek to understand the practice of plural marriage as it is related to Mormonism. Today we're going to be talking about the wives of John D. Lee. This is going to be a multi-part series because John D. Lee had a lot of wives, and there is a lot of information on these women. And so I want to break them down and get to know them a little bit more, like we did with the wives of Joseph Smith. We're going to do this a little bit with the wives of Brigham Young, too. And I apologize that we're doing this mostly with prominent women. And when I say prominent women, I mean women who are married to prominent men. It's it's troublesome that this is what we know. We actually have a lot of great histories on a lot of women, but the most successful ones, um, the ones that have published biographies, are usually ones that are married to prominent men. And that would be the case of John D. Lee. Today I'm g- going to specifically talk about one wife in particular. Her name was Emma Louise Bachelor, or Emma Batchelor Lee French. We're gonna be talking about her, but before that, I just wanted to make one correction from my last episode. I, when I was discussing Mountain Meadows, I made reference to Indians being involved in the, in the massacre. And now research is being done by Will Bagley and others who are asserting that there was little to no Indian involvement whatsoever at all. So I feel like that's important to say. That's an important correction to have. Um, it's a very important correction. So let's get into the wives of John D. Lee. Now, I'm not going to be going in a necessary order for this. Um I am going to do an episode that talks about a bunch of them in one, a bunch of women in one episode. But this one, I'm going to talk about Emma Bachelor Lee because she has a lot of information on her. Juanita Brooks actually wrote a biography on her, and that's where we get a lot of this information. She's a fascinating woman to learn about, and. She was involved, she's kind of your quintessential pioneer Mormon woman. So it's exciting to kind of talk about her. As you know, we've been talking about Southern Utah polygamy. John D. Lee was a, was an important figure in Southern Utah polygamy, especially in the development of Southern Utah. He was somebody who really worshipped Brigham Young and really wanted to be in his favor. And yet there seems to be this sort of tension of wanting and maybe jealous of power that Brigham Young had. So John D. Lee has this sort of struggle of not quite being a Brigham Young, but he was still a prominent leader in Mormonism. And of course, he would have 19 wives and 56 children. And most of the women would divorce him. I believe it was 11 11 women that would divorce him. And he has a lot of prominent descendants like Rexy Lee and Mike Lee, the senator from Utah. Uh, and the Lee family is really, really proud of his heritage. They have an entire website with uh, tons and tons of articles. Anything ever written about John D. Lee is linked there. So I'll link to the johndlee.net. Of course, um, these are done by amateur historians. So some of this is, you know, speculative research, but, uh, it's a really great site to look at. I want to talk about Emma. Bachelorly French. Now, I've brought up the book *Red Water* several times. It's a historical fiction book by Judith Freeman, and she chooses Emma to be a, a character in her book. And so, I have a certain soft spot in my heart for someone like Emma because of the way that Judith Freeman writes the character. Again, I would highly recommend that book. It's very entertaining, very well written, and it gives you a lot of insight into what it would be like to be a polygamous woman in Southern Utah during this time. Emma Batchelor-Lee French would be involved in some of the most important events in Mormon and Western history. She was a real Western frontier woman. But it didn't start out that way. She actually was born in Sussex County, England on April 21st, 1836. So as she was being born in England, the restoration is happening over in America. She was a fourth child of two parents, Henry and Elizabeth Batchelor and she grew up in this little english village uh, with you know four or five kids she was christened while she was an infant in the church of the holy cross which was sort of um a house of worship for people in that village and the the church house had been built since tw- 1299 ad there were tons of like she picture growing up in this green england there's tons of headstones with her family name on it, Bachelor, on these old, ancient tombstones. And, um, you know, she she would be part of this community. It sounds like her family was part of this community for a long, long time. When she was 16, she was baptized into the church on June 1st, 1850. She was living in the resort town of Brighton at the time, probably working as a domestic servant. And her sister Frances, who was 11 years older than her, joined the church at the same time. So they both become members of the Brighton Branch of the Kent Missionary Conference. And this would be in 1850. So now, when she's baptized, she's 16 years old, we have, the saints are already settled in the Great Basin. She moves back to her hometown in Uckfield in 1851, and her membership records are transferred to the Uckfield Branch. Um, The branch was later disorganized four years later, but... In 1855, there are 21 members listed, and she is the only person with the surname Bachelor, so that kind of indicated that she was the only member in her family still at the time. She decides to immigrate to America in 1855, and of course we know that Brigham starts enacting the Perpetual Education Fund, which was supposed to provide assistance for people who had no means to embark on the journey to America and then to gather with the saints. So Emma would apply for this assistance in Liverpool and she began gathering food, clothing, and all the provisions she needed to make the moves. So it took about eight months to get that approval and the preparations and she was notified in the third week of May that she was going to go. She was on the ship Horizon. And they departed the Bramley Moor Dock in liverpool on may twenty second eighteen fifty six Their destination was the Boston Harbor in Massachusetts, so imagine being a young girl i uh, just in your early early twenties heading out on this great adventure to America. she would be one among eight hundred fifty passengers. Um, three-fourths of them would be patrons of the Perpetual Edu- Immigration Fund. And part of their agreement was that upon emigrating, they would repay the fund with what would usually amount to one year of service in the home of a farm or settler who they stayed. So it was sort of this indentured servant sort of program. Elder Edward Martin, who had recently completed a three-year mission in Great Britain, was named president of the company. So the ship departs the docks in a timely manner on the appointed day. And at noon, they say the huge ropes which held the ship in the harbor were cast off and she began to dip and sway. And the little pilot nudged her out into the River Mercy. And she pointed her bow to the Irish Sea. This is, this is supposed to be a solemn time for these immigrants. For most of them, knowing that they were seeing their homeland for last time. Uh, there's a song that they would sing called Farewell to the England. And someone on her ship would sing this, and the And the, the words go like this. Farewell to thee England, bright home of my sires. Thou pride of the free man and boast of the brave. I have loved thee and never till being expires can I learn to forget thee, though star of the wave. It was a really melancholy song, and they would sing it. And and this is kind of, you know, you can imagine being young and excited to start this journey, and yet the sort of melancholy idea of leaving your hometown that your family had been in for centuries, it must have been an interesting sort of paradoxical kind of feeling. So they make it to the Boston Harbor. It took 34 days, and it was an excellent sailing ship. They had good headwinds and... um Everything seemed to be good, so that was really lucky for her. Then they got on railway cars waiting to take them to Iowa City. And, of course, these were little box carts with little seats built up inside. It was really rough riding, but no one complained because it was a fast way of traveling. Now, when she is traveling a few miles beyond Iowa City, Emma finds her old friend, a former acquaintance, Elizabeth Summers elizabeth summer was, was was with the James G. Willie Company, and they had arrived in America about three weeks ahead of their horizon on the ship Thornton. so imagine that imagine going on that journey and then meeting up with one of your old friends from your hometown. That must have been a really amazing reunion because Emma was poor. she would head out with a handcart company, and of course. The handcarts that in Iowa were not ready when they arrived. They were almost a month behind schedule making these handcarts. And Emma said that she knew that this would be a really hard journey. She knew it would be terrible, but she wanted to do it. Elizabeth suggested that she switch to the Willie Company so they could make their trip together. Elizabeth stayed with the Willie Company and so she stayed together. Emma agreed she wanted to become a member of the Willie Handcart Company because she wanted to be with her friend. Now, I'm just going to talk about the Willie Martin Handcart Company expedition for a minute because, and I'm certainly not an expert on this, but I think it needs mentioning because this has been used in Mormon history as a sort of faith-promoting story. I certainly grew up on these stories of sacrifice and hardship, and those are absolutely true. There was a lot of sacrifice and hardship. But, you know, thousands of Englishmen and women would suffer greatly in these handcart companies. Um, there's a historian named David Roberts who has written a book called Devil's Gate, and he's quite critical of the handcart company. He talks about the expedition being one of the most deadly chapters in the history of Western migration in the U.S. You know, nearly 250 people of the 900 members would die. And... um. Most of them died from cold and starvation, which is a terrible way to die. He likes to point out in his book that the Donner Party only had 42 members die, but of course everybody knows about the Donner Party who perished in the Sierras, but no one really talks about the Handcart Company. Of course, Mormons do. We have the book or the movie called 17 Miracles, which of course is this faith promoting story talking about sacrifice. But what those narratives in Mormon history don't always point to is a lot of those sacrifices were completely unnecessary, and they were completely due to the follies of sometimes arrogant leaders. Many of the survivors deserted the church afterwards, and you can imagine why, because they had lost trust in their leaders. Let's talk about what happened with it a little bit. Um, So many of these converts coming from factory towns in Great Britain and Scandinavia were too poor to purchase wagons and oxen, so... Brigham Young decided that they would pile their belongings into handcarts and push them across the prairies. And he figured this would take about 60 days, less time than it took to travel in a covered wagon. The reality was that there was terrible planning put into this, a lot of irrational decisions, and it dooms the handcart company from the offset. The carts were made of green wood, which means they split and broke as the pioneers pushed them across the prairies and mountains. And most of the converts were not used to the strenuous work required to propel this heavy loaded cart for hundreds of miles. Emma bachelor, would carry a handcart all by herself, it is said, all the way across the plains. Because Young claimed that handcarts would cross this trek in just two months, He really didn't provide any supply stations along the route. In fact, the planning was so poor that officials in Salt Lake City did not even know how many handcart companies were stranded in the mountains in 1856. They had no idea the impact that this was going to have. Probably the most controversial and devastating decision was to allow the immigrants to leave late in the season. They should have been on the road in May or June. Instead... The Willie and Martin Handcart companies, which were two of ten Handcart companies that would cross the plains between 1856 and 1860, would leave in August. So they leave much later. One church official got super angry at anyone who suggested that the last two companies should wait until the following spring. And he later zipped past them in his own wagon and promised that there would be no snow. He even said that he'd eat every snowflake the pioneers encountered. Brigham Young was criticized by uh, Will Bagley, the historian, and I'm going to attach his PDF where he talks about this, for just really kind of being arrogant about this. Um, Brigham Young said that he thought that this was going to try his people and that would be okay. He said, I do not apprehend the least danger of starvation, for until we eat up the last mule from the tip of the ear to the end of the fly whipper, I am not afraid of starving to death. At the same meeting when he said this, he met with Jedediah Grant, his counselor in the First Presidency, who we've talked about before, and he said something similar. He said that he was... Quote, Glad that our crops failed. Why? Because it teaches the people a lesson. It keeps the corrupt at bay, for they know that they would have to starve or import their rations should they come to injure us in the territory of Utah. Quote. Now, I just want to talk about for a second why the Saints felt like they had to gather to begin with. One of the 13 Articles of Faith uh, proclaims, "We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes, that Zion, the New Jerusalem." will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed renewed and receive its paradisiacal, paradisiacal glory. End quote. I need to go back to primary. This doesn't have a lot of relevance today. I mean we kind of talk about it here and there in Sunday school. But at the time this was a huge issue for Mormon saints. Um, and Mormons took this very seriously. There is one woman, um, who was critical of Jean Jacques', um, handcart plan. And so Jean Jacques rebukes her in the pages of the M- Millennial Star. He said, quote, Joseph Smith prophesied that those who would not gather to Zion when their way was open should be afflicted by the devil, end quote. And of course, Brigham Young was preaching these, these fiery, Sermons with the urgency of gathering. He believed that the church existed, quote, to roll on the work of the last days, gather the saints, preach the gospel, build up cities and temples, send the gospel to the utmost parts of the earth, and revolutionize the whole world, end quote. He really thought, I mean, the saints would see this as a literal and spiritual gathering. And there was urgency, because, like I said, these saints believed that in 1890. That Christ was coming. They had to get there and they had to get there fast and they had to get these people over. And by the end of 1855, the Perpetual Immigrating Fund had brought over uh, 3,441 immigrants to Utah. A lot of this was, you know, they were all coming through these handcart schemes. And some, you know, you'll hear these great journal entries of people that said it was a glorious way to travel to Zion. But the reality for the Willie and Martin handcart company is that it was a terrible, traumatic, awful, awful way to travel to Zion. And I'm going to go ahead and attach uh, Bagley's document so you can read that in a little bit more detail. So they set out in these wagons, you know, um, one pioneer would say, immigrant John Chislett describes his problem with the handcarts. He says, quote, the axles and boxes being of wood and being ground out by the dust that found its way there in spite of our efforts to keep it out, together with the extra weight put on the carts, had the effect of breaking the axles at the shoulder. All kinds of expedients were resorted to as remedies for the growth of evil, for the, for the growing evil, but with variable success. Some wrapped their axles with leather, obtained from bootlegs, others with tin, others by sacrificing tin plates, kettles, or buckets from their mess outfit. Besides these inconveniences, there was felt a great lack of proper lubricator, lubricator, or anything suitable for the purposes. We had none at all. End quote. So they have these really dysfunctional handcarts that f- weren't ready to begin with, so they're trying to hurry and get them ready they're made out of this terrible wood that splinters and they don't have the proper equipment and we have the leader saying what's the big deal do you not have faith you need to make it there the snow of course they start heading out in august they they're traveling and they get they get stuck in the winter the snow was thick and heavy and cold and all but buried two parties of the immigrants as they made their way through these mountains. The few wagons that accompanied these handcart trains could not handle all the sick and and the feeble, and so they were piled on top of the handcarts who were pushed by already exhausted families. Some There are some stories of people crawling on their knees through the snow because their feet were so frozen. Dozens would die, and dozens more on some nights— And over and over and over again, there are first-hand accounts of pioneers waking up the next morning to frozen, dead bodies of their loved ones. Starvation was a huge problem. The organizers had underestimated the amount of food the pioneers would require. The head of one company ordered the immigrants to lighten their loads, thereby depriving them of blankets and clothing that could have saved their life. He ordered the abandoned articles burned lest the owners would come back and retrieve them. He didn't want that. So he said, burn burn the blankets, they're too heavy. Many of these converts would suffer from that and lost limbs to frostbite. And of course, you know, there is a lot of anger from historians out there. And so the author of Devil's Gate, of course, Roberts, in his book, he is very critical of Brigham Young. He claims that Brigham Young whitewashed the handcart experience. And we sort of started this tradition of whitewashing it and reframing it because a lot of it was Brigham Young's bad mismanagement of the expedition and of the funds, and Will Bagley kind of asserts the same thing, and he cites evidences in how Brigham Young would do this and kind of um, this being a big foible of Brigham Young. And there's a lot of controversy there, but what is true is this was not a faith-promoting thing. Many people lost their faith. Many people suffered, and it was mostly the men. And this is where we get the myth of polygamy being for the women. You know, I was just down at the at the Beehive House. I had a tour with my friend, Geraldine, and we went there. And, of course, it was surprising that in Brigham Young's house, where polygamy isn't even controversial, they didn't bring polygamy up. But when I did, you know, I was trying to be as respectful as possible, but they brought it up and they said, you know, polygamy happened because all the women coming across the plains, lost their husbands, and they needed husbands when they came to Utah. And I remember hearing similar stories. That is actually factually not true, I think as you've seen in the series so far, but the sort of roots can be seen in something like the William Martin Handcart Company where a lot of the men were the ones that were dying because they were the ones exposing themselves to the elements. They're the ones getting wet in the frozen creeks. They're the ones going out to try to fix the handcarts. And so, of course, a lot of the survivors were women coming into the valley, traumatized, starving, um, sick, and very, very, very poor. And that's where we see Emma Bachelor Lee coming in. She makes it through these terrible storms, and she gets into Utah and is quickly taken into the home of settlers. Many of her friends and family would have frozen fingers and and toes, and, of course, they all suffered from malnutrition. Emma had no relatives in Salt Lake City, so she would be taken into the home of brother and sister James Kippen. It took a while for her, but she soon recovered her normal, good health, and she would become an employee of the Kippen household to kind of pay off her debts. She, She really didn't like it there. She talks about, you know, the husband, James kind of wanting her as a wife but sister Kippen was not a fan of hers and she became basically her personal servant it was not a positive experience for her she felt like she was not treated well and she was really disgusted with the arrangement that she was required to work for a year to satisfy the perpetual emigration fund agreement that she had that she had promised that she would repay but she didn't want to work there things got bad she felt like, the husband was a little bit predatory, and she felt like the wife was really mean to her. So she was seeking employee, employment elsewhere when she met John D. Lee, who happened to be in Salt Lake City from southern Utah. He was representing Washington County in the state legislature. Now, it's interesting when they meet. Um, because they meet in the sort of new year of 1858. It's said that they were mutually attracted to one another. She claims that she was attracted to him right from the beginning. But she, she agrees to be sealed to him rather quickly. So on January 7th, 1858, in Brigham Young's own sealing room, she is sealed. She had met him just in December and like just a couple days later. So she met him December 27th, 1857, and is sealed to him on January 7th, 1858. Not very long at all. And of course, If you're paying attention to the dates, when she meets him, December 27th, 1857. So for those who have been paying attention, this was December 1857. What happened September of 1857? Of course, the infamous Mountain Meadows Massacre, just a few months before. At this time, of course, Emma's just from England. She's been traumatized in this terrible, terrible uh, journey to the West, and of course she's in this terrible, dysfunctional household, and she's so happy to marry a prominent man in the priesthood, but she had no idea that he was involved, and many said directed the infamous Mountain Meadows Massacre. And so, she marries him, and she's going to head to southern Utah in the wake of this. She has no idea what she is getting into. Of course, This massacre affected all of southern Utah, and of course it affected John D. Lee. At the time, it was sort of this hush-hush thing they didn't talk about. Of course, John D. Lee had taken a blood oath not to talk about it. So I'm particularly interested in his sort of behavior, what it would have been like to honeymoon with John D. Lee back from Salt Lake City after a man had just helped murder at least 120 men, women, children. And then come to Salt Lake and report to Brigham Young about it. She's going home to this, to her new home. She's never met his other wives. She doesn't know anything about this country. And you can imagine what that would have been like. Now, of course, in Redwater the fictional book, Judith takes some great liberties and talks about this, and I think it she does a beautiful job. It's all it's all based in historical research and the accounts of Emma. So she she meets a family at Harmony which was one of Brigham Young's Outer Cordon communities established in 1852 in southern Utah. His family, John DeLee's family, was living a rough frontier life. They were trying to grow their own food and supplying basically all their wants for themselves. And there are stories of these wives having to go out in the fields and find a root, this root to eat, because they were starving so she goes, she ends up in the house, and she meets these women. Of course, she doesn't know about the massacre. She would, of course, hear about the massacre. But um, she would have to live with that. And again, I would encourage you to read Redwater. Although it's historical fiction, it really has a lot of little tidbits for example, John D. Lee was known for being particularly gifted at a certain sexual practice with the ladies, and uh of course, Judith Freeman incorporates that into her book and how this might affect Emma French. And of course, Emma French was one of the women that I'm talking about that came to Southern Utah from England and was like, the land is on fire, I'm in the Zion. Um. It would not be an easy life because the wives were already having problems. Of course, many of John D. Lee's wives would leave him, which suggests it was not an easy life living with him. And she is set in this impoverished town. By the late 1860s, external pressure was really mounting from federal officials demanding justice for the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And John D. Lee becomes the most wanted man. He, of course, claims he is the scapegoat, but... In 1870, Brigham Young would officially excommunicate John D. Lee, although the church continued to assign him important tasks. It was kind of this thing like, we will do this for the government's sake, but you're still one of ours. Lee was requested to establish a ferry crossing on the Colorado River, approximately 15 miles south of the present Utah-Arizona border. So what they were trying to do is get rid of Lee, send him further and further south to kind of make this problem go away. The spot that they were at was, had been used for at least 200 years by indigenous people. It's a place between Moab, Utah, and Needles, California. And it's, it's where a wagon could easily be driven to the riverbanks from either side. So they were supposed to set up this ferry there. Father Dominguez and Escalante had attempted to cross the same spot, which they called Salsapudes, which means get out if you can during their historic explorations of October 26, 1776. But the water was too high and too fast. So they built their, the Leeds established their ferry service in 1872 there. And of course, this would be an important link between Utah and other Mormon settlements in Arizona and beyond. So Emma was one of the wives to go there. Not John did not take all of his wives there. He, By the 1870s, he's splitting up his wives. There's a lot of problems. But he takes Emma there, and they build a site called Lonely Dell, sort of reflecting on the isolation. And of course, over the next few years, Emma, along with her sister wife, Rachel, and 13 children who accompanied them to that site, would try to make improvements, including building a substantial house and gardens. They really pour their heart and soul into this. In July 1872, it said that the Lee family entertained really important people like John Wesley Powell, who was the famous Civil War hero, was coming to the Colorado River for an exploration party. And he would write that Emma was this amazing cook and that he had such great food. Um So they would have they. it wasn't it was a hard time due to the pressure, but they she really did try to make the best of it. When. John Dealey goes into hiding, it's in 1873, and of course the government is really tightening up their hold on him. He is finally captured in Panguitch, Utah on November 7, 1874. John Dealey would lose even more of his wives, but Emma was one that would remain loyal to him for the three years of his imprisonment and through his two trials. She would bring him food in the Beaver Jail and was even accused of helping plot him escape jail. And of course, his journal entries and his letters to her reflect this deep bond, which she seemed to also share with him. She loved him. She worshipped this man. He was, in a way, her rescuer. Before he was arrested in 1873, there are some apocryphal stories involving Emma. She says that a settlement of Navajos came to the camp near the Lee home. She was really fearful of the closeness of the Indians next to her family. And so it said that she tried to befriend the Navajo people and soon discovered that the tribe's chief was a friend of her husband's. So she took her family and they even spent a night at the Navajo camp and had a great time. She says at another time when she was working in the home, of course, this is a, this is a common story that I mentioned about Indians just like having this uncanny ability to like sneak up on you when you're in your home and you're doing your dishes and you would turn around and there was a Indian standing right there and of course this becomes kind of the folk narrative of the time but Emma has her own about a Navajo chief coming in to attack her and you might have heard the story but Emma has a steaming pot of hot water on the stove and she throws the hot water on his face and defends herself and it's said later this chief came back and apologized and asked medical attention for the burns. And, you know, I'm uncomfortable telling these stories without saying that, of course, these stories are written through a sort of colonial, imperialistic, white, European perspective. So just keep that in mind. It said that afterwards, he told his tribe that Emma was a very powerful woman and had a great spirit and to leave her alone. And, It's said that she really tried to learn the Navajo language. She would give birth to six babies, and with John D. Lee gone, she asked the oldest person at her house, John Jr., to help cut the umbilical cord of her sixth baby when he was born. And of course, this was done to perfection, and the daughter was safely born. So imagine giving birth, and the only help that you have are your children. John D. Lee was found guilty, after a lot of trial and political back and forth. And on March 23rd, 1877, he was shot by a firing squad. Emma would already be stigmatized being married to him, but now she didn't have a husband to provide for her. So, through what is a lot of pressure, and she claims some manipulation, she sells the ferry to the LDS Church for a 100 milk cows. Um... She felt really taken advantage of by this. I guess the church had been trying to obtain this property from her for some time, and she had fought them off. But she finally gives in, and she had help by a Civil War veteran. His name was Franklin French, and Franklin French was a wandering gold prospector that had met her earlier in her marriage. And it's said that he sort of had an attraction to her, but she, of course, was a married woman. After John D. Lee was Or was executed on 1877, Emma starts to fall in love or at least find comfort in the Civil War veteran Franklin French. And she decides to marry him in Snowflake, Arizona on August 9th. They found a home near Holbrook, Arizona and they next moved to the White Mountains. But, um... The White Mountain Apaches had an uprising in 1882 and killed 150 settlers that night, of course. This is controversial and disputed as well. But Emma was supposedly warned just before the attack on her ranch that she should escape. So she takes her kids and they escape and they were said to hear the shooting and livestock and saw smoke and the burning buildings. And later French would sue the government for $10,000 for the loss of the ranch. But the land was resurveyed and was found to be an to be on Apache land. It was right near the border of this sort of reservation. So in 1887, she and Franklin moved to Winslow, Arizona, and they established a dairy ranch. At this time, the Santa Fe Railroad was being built, and many times the railroad would send us a special train to bring Emma to help take care of the railroad workers' injuries. So she starts to become known as Dr. French, although she had no official medical title or practice, but she had this sort of mystical ability to cure the sick. She would help many women, including and especially Navajo prostitutes, give birth. And um it's said that, you know, these women really, really valued her for her services. Things would not go smoothly for her. In 1888, her daughter, Victoria Lee, would commit suicide. And in 1892, her son, Ike, was confronted by a man who was trying to seduce his wife and was murdered by that man. So she lost two children to sort of, um, tragic, tragic ways. On November 1897, her husband was on an expedition looking for gold, and she had this sort of premonition of her own death. When French returned on November 16th, the day she was fixing, that day she was fixing breakfast and said, I don't feel too well, and she suffered a heart attack. It's said that at her funeral, a crowd of businessmen, railroad workers, and navajos and navajo prostitutes kept a vigil navajos and prostitutes white and navajo kept a vigil outside her home as she lay in her bed dying that night her funeral was one of the largest held in winslow and the santa fe stopped their trains for a tribute to her her tombstone is in the old cemetery in winslow arizona marked dr french that is the life of a frontier woman right there she she comes across starts in england goes across the ocean to Boston, rides a train to Iowa, is in the Willie Martin Handcart Company in a very tragic expedition to Utah, makes it to Utah, marries an infamous murderer, moves to southern Utah with his polygamous family, stays loyal to him, visits him at the jail, is involved in this court process, goes to Arizona, helps with the fairy, meets all these famous Western characters, remarries after her husband is shot to death with a firing squad, and becomes an important, important figure in Arizona history. So that is why I wanted to talk about Emma French. I think that she's someone you could do a lot of extra research. Juanita Brooks has a biography on her that's great. And uh, the John D. Lee... Family Foundation also has a lot to say about her as well. So thank you so much for listening. We're going to be covering John Dee Lee's wives a little bit more this week, and I would really encourage you to pay attention to them because all of their stories are so incredibly unique. It is worth listening. So go ahead and leave your feedback in the comment section at org, and leave a donation if you're inclined. Thanks.